We are going to get started, or actually continue our, our worship service by jumping into God's Word together. Would you open up with me to 1 John chapter 2? Again, the book of 1 John chapter 2 is where we'll be. It's at the way back of your Bible, not to be confused with the Gospel of John, but the letter of 1 John. Okay, way back, almost the very end of your Bible, chapter 2, that's where we're going to be this morning. And as you've seen, for the month of December, we're taking a little bit of a break from the normal. We've been preaching through the book of Exodus, just little by little, and now we're spending some time to focus on this season of Advent, which we heard a little bit from the candle lighting and the reading and the prayer as this special season that we're stuck in kind of this complex emotional place, when you think about it, where we both look back with great joy to the first coming of Jesus, his birth that we celebrate at Christmas. But Advent is also about looking forward to the second coming of Christ and to his return. And so there's this reality that we reflect on our world and the fact that it's not as it should be. And there's this yearning, this expectation, this longing for Jesus to return and, and make all things new and restore and heal our broken world. And so that's what Advent is all about. And so glad we have these, these readings, these prayers, these uh, times of reflection on, on that. So I'm going to pray as we get ready to jump into 1 John chapter 2, all right? Father, we love you and we are grateful for the gift of another Sunday morning together. Thank you for your presence here with us. We know that uh, we did not invite you here, Lord, but you invited us. You called us to worship you. You've drawn us here. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us. Help us as we open your word to understand what we read, to be sensitive to what you're saying, to, to listen, to apply it to our lives. So we, just, we give you, Lord, our, our time and our hearts and ask you to teach us this morning. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, hey, if you were involved in church back in the 90s or the early 2000s, you maybe remember this particular cultural trend, kind of a fashion trend, this movement where people would wear little bracelets that had four letters on them. Do you remember this? WWJD. I mean, really, do you remember what the WWJD stands for? What would Jesus do, right? These were the bracelets that like the hardcore Christians would wear. Like the really serious Jesus people would have a WWJD bracelet. Anybody have one of those? Anybody wear it? Yeah, all right. Some heart, right? Props, okay? What would Jesus do? And the idea behind the bracelet, if you weren't like in church back then, or you're like, you're like what are these Christians are weird? What's this all about? We would wear, these bracelets would remind people to ask the question, what would Jesus do? So, in any situation, you found yourself in, you wanted to know, how should I respond as a Christian? You'd think, okay, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus treat this person? What would Jesus say or not say? How would Jesus interact in this environment? And that was to be the guide for us. We want to follow the model and the example of Jesus. So, the bracelets, what would Jesus do? But whenever this concept was shared, there was sometimes some pushback, and sometimes it was subtle. It wasn't always voiced. Sometimes it was just internally a bit of an objection to the WWJD idea. And that objection went something like this. I'm not Jesus. 
And so I can't be expected to do what Jesus did or what Jesus would do. And so sometimes when we read the Gospels and we see the life of Jesus and what he said and how he loved people and healed people, how he treated people, his warmth with people, his wisdom with people, all those things, we kind of let ourselves off the hook. And we're like, yeah, but, I mean, he was Jesus, right? We play the, yeah, but he was Jesus card, so I'm not expected to do that, or I can't possibly be expected to, to love people like that or serve people like that or do whatever it might be. Now, certainly there are aspects of Jesus' life that were completely unique that we are not expected to repeat, but surely his life is expected to be a guide for us, a model of how to live. And that's what we're looking at with this God in person Advent series. Why did Jesus come in the flesh to be born, to live, to die? One reason is because he came to show us how to live. And we're going to see that in 1 John. Let's look at it together. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 is where we're going to start. It says this, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Verse 6, Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So we have the Apostle John here writing toward the end of the first century, and it appears that there were many people who were leaving the faith, abandoning Jesus, or starting to teach things that simply weren't true, believing heresies about who Jesus was or what it meant to be a Christian. And he's addressing some of those here. And you see him using pretty confrontational language. It's like, if you say you're a Christian and you don't do what Jesus tells you to do, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. It's pretty direct and abrupt. And he gives these measures here of how you can know you're truly walking with Jesus, that you truly are in him and know him. And what does he say in verse 6? Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And his whole point here in this section is we can't just talk the talk. We can't just make claims. Three different times in these verses it says, if anyone claims... If anyone claims, and he counters that with, hey, if you claim this, then you have to live it out. We have to walk the walk. We can't just say, I know him, I love him, I'm in the truth, I'm in Christ, and then have a life that doesn't display that at all. He says we have to walk as Jesus walked. Now, you might be thinking, that's a pretty high bar. Are we sure this is really what we're called to? Let's look at a few other verses in the New Testament that say pretty much the same thing, okay? 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to have the words on the screen. You, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. We study, uh, studied the letter of 1 Peter in its entirety a few months ago as a church. So pointing back to what we saw in 1 Peter chapter 2 there, Peter is telling the Christians in the first century to do good, to endure suffering, endure mistreatment, as Christians, and it says in verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Okay, Jesus suffered. He loved people, endured mistreatment. He set you an example to follow. Or we could look at 
John chapter 13, this powerful picture where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Powerful image of love, humility, service. And as he does this, he says there in chapter 15, excuse me, verse 15 of chapter 13, he says, I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So apparently there is something to this whole WWJD thing. We are to look to Jesus as a model of how to live, as our example to follow. We should more and more look like Jesus if we're following Jesus. And I don't know where this happened, but somewhere along the way, we kind of lost sight of that. And faith, for many, became this purely transactional thing where we say a prayer, we make a decision, we believe something years ago, and then we just kind of go about living however we want to live. And we've lost this sense of discipleship, that being a Christian, being saved, means that we have responded to the call to follow Jesus, to follow him. And in the first century context, in the Jewish world, if you were following a rabbi, a teacher, if you were a disciple of someone, it meant you sought to emulate them in every way, their way of life, their teaching. You would shape your life around theirs. And so as Christians, we are called to follow Jesus, to walk how he walked. Now, certainly there are some nuances here that we should point out. Are we expected to walk on water as Jesus did? Probably not. The bay's right over there. You can go and try it, but I don't think that that's what this means. Are we expected to raise our friends from the dead like Lazarus? Probably not. Are we expected to die for the sins of the world? Quick no on that one. No, we're not. And so there are, of course, pieces of the life of Jesus that are unique. Reasons that he stands alone, completely unique as the only savior of the world. And yet, there are plenty of parts of his life that we are supposed to emulate. It's an example that we are to follow. Part of the reason we get hung up on this is because we sometimes forget the humanity of Jesus. It's easy for us uh, in a church like ours to look at the deity of Christ. He was fully God. He was, he is, absolutely. He was also fully man. And so we can't just say, well, he's playing his God card all the time, so I, I can't relate to Jesus in any way. I can't possibly do any of the things that he did because, well, it was, he was God. He was God. He is God. But he's also fully man. He showed us what it looked like to live as a human being ought to live. He was the most fully human person to ever live. Ian Thomas, the founder of Torchbearers International, it's a Bible school throughout the world, said this, Jesus was man as God intended man to be. Jesus was man as God intended man to be. He showed us, here's what it looks like to be truly human. Here's what it looks like to be a human in right relationship with God the Father. And so if that's the case, then what are some of these specifics? If we're supposed to follow the example of Jesus, what should that look like? What are the sorts of things we should be seeing in our life? I think the first thing that comes to mind that these 
texts actually point to is the example of love that Jesus set. If you look in the context of 1 John chapter 2, our text for the morning, you skip ahead of you verses to verse 9 and 10. Look at what it says. He says, hey, if anyone claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister, they're still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light. So he's continuing a similar theme. Hey, if you claim to know God, if you claim to be in him, if you claim to walk in the light, but you don't live it out and, and you hate your brother or sister, you don't love them, then you're lying and the truth is not in you. And so one of these marks of truly following Jesus' example is that we should love people. Jesus was famous for his love, so Christians should be famous and known for their love. We see the same thing in John chapter 13, right? After he washes his disciples' feet, he loves them, he serves them in humility. Then he says to them a little later in verse 34 of chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. As I have loved you, that's how I want you to love one another and to love ultimately the world. So we think about, of course, we see his love shown in his sacrificial death, giving himself up for us. And we also see how he loved his disciples by serving them, by welcoming them. We see the compassion he had on people, the way he healed people, the way he honored people as he lived. But let's hone in on this fact, this as I have loved you, the sacrificial love of Jesus. We're called to love people sacrificially which means our love should be costly. Should cost us something. It's not just in word that we are to love people or express love for people. It's in action, right? In, in what we do, how we live, how we care for people. Love is an action word. And if you, again, skip a little bit ahead in the letter of 1 John, he'll say as much. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So, Here's the picture of love. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus died for us. Jesus sacrificed himself for us. That's what love looks like. And so we're called to that kind of love. If you were here at the kids' choir last week, you heard them sing about a love that's about action, right? How did the song go? If you remember, let us not love with words. I'm doing a really poor job. Let us not love just by what we say. And I think there was like a 70s dance move that they threw in there that I won't quite do for you. But you know, let us not love with words. Let us not just love by what we say, but let us love with action. Let us love with action. It's going to be costly. We're going to have to do things differently in order to love people, not just talk. This week I read about a premarital counseling session that a pastor was having with a young couple. They both professed their deep love for one another, the bride and groom-to-be. But the groom-to-be had some reservations about full commitment, it seemed. The pastor started to notice that he was unwilling to make certain changes in his life. He was even unwilling to stop seeing or being involved with past girlfriends. Even though he's engaged, even though he's about to get married, even though his fiance is like, hey, not cool with that. He's like, hey, and here's what he said. Marriage is not just supposed to be a bunch of rules. Sure, I love my wife, but I don't want to let that kind of infringe upon my freedoms. 
So I still want to do what I want to do. To which the pastor was concerned about, rightfully so. It's like, I don't think you fully understand what this is exactly that you're getting into. Right? But he says, it's one thing to say, I love you, and express your undying love for another person. But then if you're unwilling to change or do things differently because of that, sacrifice something in a costly way, do we truly love them? So Jesus calls us to sacrificial love, and so it forces us to ask the question, in what way am I loving people sacrificially? Has it been costly for me to love people? Or do I just love people in convenient ways? Like when it's convenient for me, sure, I'll care for people in this way. Sure, I'll express love in this way. Has it cost us anything? Have we had to sacrifice anything for the good of other people? That's part of what this Togo fundraising is all about, right? As a church, we're trying to raise $14,000 for this child development center in Dowra. If you were here back in February, maybe you remember our church partnered with Compassion International, gave a chunk of money to start this child development center in Togo where kids were going to have basic needs met and hear the gospel. They're going to hear about Jesus. They're going to have community development. All these exciting things happening. Over 70 people from our church uh, committed to sponsoring monthly uh, kids from that village. And then we said, this is so exciting what's going on here, how God is using this ministry. We want to continue to partner with them and bless them. And so we said, hey, what can we do? And they said, well, we, we want to build sanitation facilities. We want to have tables and chairs for kids to sit on. All of that's going to be able to improve what we do, how we love this community, how we share the gospel. And we said, okay, how much is that going to cost? And they said $14,000. And we said, okay. And so we've been trying to raise $14,000. And we're already at $12,000, which in just a couple of weeks is really exciting. And it shows your generosity and how you've responded to that call to give to be generous, to love these people that are halfway across the world that many of us may never meet. But we say, we want to have an impact in their lives. But here's the deal. For a lot of us, we don't just have a ton of money laying around. Some of us do, but most of us don't. Things are tight. And so in order to give to something like this, in order to give above and beyond normal giving, normal generosity, it's probably going to be costly. It's probably going to have to be sacrificial. It's probably going to mean that we're going to have to say no to certain things in order to say yes to this opportunity. And that's what it looks like to love people, to be willing to sacrifice for the good of others. So Jesus' example of love was sacrificial. We, of course, see this in his death on the cross. There's more, though. When we think about how Jesus loved the world, we also see that Jesus loved his enemies. So the example of love that Jesus set was sacrificial, it was costly, and it was even for his enemies. Right, as he's on the cross, praying for the forgiveness of those that are crucifying him, Father, forgive them. Dying for people who had rejected him, who were spitting on him, Dying for a world that at the time was running away from him, wanting nothing to do with him. He died for us, for our good. And so, do we love only the people that we're expected to love? The people that we're supposed to love? Maybe the people that 
are easy to love. It's natural for us to love them. Think about our kids most of the time, our spouse, maybe some friends in our lives. The people, you know, it's somewhat easy to love them. We're expected to love them. It's kind of normal. Or are we loving people that are difficult to love? People that are not like us. Maybe the people that don't like us. Jesus says, love your enemies. And Jesus actually says, hey, if you just love the people that love you, what reward will you get for that? It's like, that's what everybody does. Unless you're a sociopath. Right? <laughs> love the people that loved you. That's what everybody does. Unless you're a sociopath. So congratulations. You're not a sociopath. Let's raise the bar a little bit. Right? Like First Baptist Church of Benicia. Not a bunch of sociopaths. Great. Hey, let's aim a little higher. Right? <laughs> let's aim a little higher. Sacrificial love even for our enemies. So how do we, how do we love people? Again, the people that don't look like you people that don't think like you, the people that don't vote like you. How do you love the people that are maybe a little bit difficult or, or hard to love? I read a quote this week that was so good. It said, it's hard to convince people that a God they can't see loves them when a church they can see doesn't seem to like them. And it's hard to convince people a God they can't see loves them when a church they can see doesn't seem to like them. Are we following the example of Jesus? To love people, even our enemies. What's our posture towards outsiders, towards people who aren't in this room right now? Let's be honest, the reality is we can look at areas of our lives and we look at the example of Jesus and how he loves and we can see, hey, there's there's a gap, right? We, we don't follow the example of Jesus perfectly. As Christians, we should want to. We should more and more be looking like Jesus and how we live, but we acknowledge it's a process, right? And we're, we're not there. We're gonna fall short. And so when we do realize the gap between the example Jesus set and our own lives and how we love, what should we do? Because we should want to change that, right? We should want to, as the scriptures say, walk as Jesus walked. So there's a few things that we can do to address that when we notice how we fall short in our own lives. The first thing we can do is this. We can pray. We need to pray and say, God, I do not love this person the way you want me to love them. God, it is hard to love this person. It is hard to love people in this situation. I don't feel love for them, and so God, I need you to help me. I need you to change my heart. I know you love them, so I need you to put your love for them in me. I need you to change my heart, because on my own, that love's not just gonna pop up, not just gonna feel like it tomorrow, so I need you to change me. God, give me your love. Give me your heart for these people, for this person specifically, so we can pray. Also, we can start to spend more time with Jesus. Spend time with Jesus. Most of you know that Lee, Pastor Lee, is from the South, but you don't really notice an accent on him, right? Right? Doesn't really have much of an accent, but I, my sources tell me, I've heard that when he goes to the South 
and spends time with his dad specifically, the accent comes out, okay? And he starts to say southern things. And I, I'm not even going to attempt. In first service, I tried to make, I'm not even going to try to sound like that. But go ask Lee. Maybe he'll give you a demonstration, okay? But the idea was he's spending time with his dad. He's kind of immersed in it. He hears it. And so he kind of sounds that way more and more. And maybe you've noticed this in your own life, not with a southern twang, but in any number of ways, when you spend time with people, you kind of start to take on their mannerisms a little bit, start to sound like them a little bit more, you spend a lot of time with them, maybe start to think like them, joke like them, act like them a little bit, bit by bit. The same is true with Jesus. When we spend time with Jesus, we begin to sound like him a little bit more, look like him a little bit more, think and act like him a little bit more. And so we need to be spending time with Jesus. So we need to pray. We need to spend time with Jesus. And part of that spending time with Jesus can be done in, in corporate worship. Sunday mornings are important because there's something special that happens when we uh, sing these truths about Jesus, when we open up God's word together, when we pray together. There's a saying that goes uh, like this, you become what you behold. You become what you behold. And so what we look at what we fix our eyes upon, we start to look like. So that's why corporate worship, worship in general, but especially corporate worship is so important because we need to look at Jesus. We need to see him in his glory and in his beauty and in his grace and see his love. And when we behold him and see what he is like and worship him, it, it stirs our hearts and it starts to change us. And we begin to look more and more like him. So Jesus set the example of love that we are to follow, sacrificial, even for enemies. He also set the example in these texts, we'll see, the example of trust in his Father. Trust in God, the Father. I want you to see that in 1 Peter chapter 2. We read it already, but I want to read a few more verses there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 says this. It says, But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God, because to this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Verse 22, he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So, here's the idea. Christians are called to do good in the world to endure suffering, and as Jesus did, entrust themselves to God. Meaning, you might be mistreated, you might be insulted, you might be made fun of. In the first century world, you might face a bit more serious persecution and threat to your life. No matter the case, entrust yourself to God. Don't worry about retaliating, hurling back insults, getting even, having the last word, defending yourself against every accusation. Jesus did not do those things. What did he do? He entrusted himself to God the Father. Say, you know what? I don't have to get even. I don't have to retaliate. I don't have to defend myself against every accusation. God knows the truth. God can see all things perfectly clear. I'm going to entrust myself to him. He'll sort all this out in the end. I can simply love, stay the course, be faithful. Don't need to take things into my own hands. 
And maybe this is an example we especially need to see this time of year. Family gatherings are coming. Christmas parties are coming at work. Maybe there's tension in the air. Maybe there's unresolved pain from the past. Wounds that have not healed. Awkward conversations ahead. Family gatherings we're not necessarily looking forward to. So as Christians, we have an opportunity to set an example of love and grace and forgiveness and not hold grudges and not have to have the last word and not work to get even and be okay with being misunderstood sometimes. Follow Jesus' example. Love, entrust yourself to the Father. Trust that God knows what he's doing. He's gonna sort it all out in the end. We can just play our part and not take things into our own hands. Jesus also set us an example, a bit more practically speaking. We can look at how Jesus spent his time. Some of the healthy rhythms that Jesus had in his life that we could model our lives after. Okay, a few things come to mind in that sense. The example he set with the rhythms in his life. One, he spent a lot of time with people. He had 12 close friends that he walked around with for three years, kind of nonstop. He was deeply committed to people, to relational ministry, to pouring himself into others, to being interruptible, stopping to heal people or talk with those people that, that showed up in his life. He was deeply committed to people. So we should be too. And if you're an introvert and that sounds like a nightmare, what I just explained, this next part's for you. Jesus also was committed to solitude and prayer. Okay, introverts, that one's for you. Jesus constantly is withdrawing from the crowds and the multitudes, getting away from the hustle and bustle in order to pray, in order to be alone, to be with his Father. So we need to have that rhythm in our life as well to follow his example. Also, we see that Jesus was deeply committed to God's word, deeply committed to the scriptures. He knew them well. He quoted them often, often saying, it is written, speaking of them over and over again. And so we can look at these commitments, these rhythms in his life, being committed to people, spending time in prayer, spending time learning God's word. And we should follow that example as well. Sure, plenty of what Jesus did was extraordinary, miraculous and spectacular, but plenty of it is also ordinary, ordinary human things that we should do in our lives as well. One last word before we, before we close. Again, Jesus is our example to follow, but he's not just our example. It's possible to hear this message and to look at 1 John 2, 6, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did, must live as Jesus did, and say, well, there it is. Follow Jesus' example. He's a great moral teacher, lived a good moral life. Sure, we should love, we should forgive, we should be gracious with people. That's really the heart of what Jesus was about. To which we would say, well, that's part of it, but he's not just an example. Right? Look at how chapter 2 started in 1 John. It says, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So friends, we should be challenged as followers of Jesus to emulate his life, to walk as he 
walked, but I do not want us to leave this morning burdened with the weight and the expectation that it's our obedience that will save us. That all Jesus was about was setting an example and go follow it. He came to be our Savior. To rescue us from ourselves. To rescue us from sin and death and condemnation. That's what these verses speak of. If we sin, which we will, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate, a helper, one who intercedes for us. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And it says he's the atoning sacrifice for our sins in verse 2. Or maybe your translation says the propitiation for our sins. It's an offering or a sacrifice that turns away wrath. Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross, turning away God's judgment and condemnation so that we would not have to bear it ourselves, so that we would be forgiven, so that we would be freed and restored to a right relationship with God. And so this is the good news, friends, that, that our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is not in, hey, follow the moral example of Jesus. He was a great guy. You go be a great guy too. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we have sinned and fallen short. We need a savior. Jesus is that savior who died for us. And then, in grateful response to what he's done, we can live this new life in him. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit within us who changes us and allows us then to follow Jesus faithfully. So Jesus came to be our example, yes, but not just our example, also our Savior. And so with that, friends, we have an opportunity to remember these truths, to celebrate this truth by taking communion together as a church family, which is where we come to the table. We take the bread and the cup and remember Jesus' broken body and shed blood for us. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup, said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we come to the table, we do just that. We remember Jesus. That he's our savior. He died for us. And in him, we have forgiveness of sins and new life. Uh, we practice an open table here at the church, which means uh, even if you're visiting or from out of town, uh, you're welcome to participate with us. Anyone who has put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, we invite you to come forward. The elements are gluten-free, so nothing to worry about there. There's two stations up front. Uh, the music is going to play, and I just want to invite you to come forward as you're ready to remember and celebrate Jesus with us. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we just want to say thank you. Thank you for your love and grace. Thank you that you died for us on the cross to forgive us our sins, to redeem us, and to give us new life in you. So we remember you today. We celebrate you as our Savior. And Jesus, we also ask for your help, Lord, to follow your example, to walk as you walked. Would you fill us with your spirit would you enable us, Lord, to live how you want us to live? It's in your name we pray. Amen.